0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. On today's show, it's going to get very cold. 440 degrees below zero.
1: You're listening to a refrigerator. A special refrigerator, but a refrigerator.
0: What they're keeping cold has to do with quantum computing. Technology Colorado is hanging its hat on. Then a Colorado prisoner becomes a professor.
2: The biggest asset to having David or anyone else who's incarcerated teaching those who are around them is the hope that he gives to the students.
0: And today, that professor, David Carrillo, is a free man after the governor granted him clemency. We'll get a picture of prison education. Later, a map that identifies neighborhoods most in need of climate help isn't working like it should.
3: Are you planning to take advantage of Colorado's supercharged EV discounts? If you're in the market for a new electric car, consider donating your old one to Colorado Public Radio. You get a new car, we get your old car. And the proceeds from your tax-deductible donation mean we all get great programming. Find the title, fill out a simple online form, and schedule a pickup. It's that easy to donate your car at CPR.org slash support.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Did you know you live in a quantum technology hub? Yes, the federal government recently gave Colorado that designation, meaning the state might draw millions in federal funding. But what does quantum really mean? What does it do? Well, CPR business reporter Sarah Mulholland has some answers. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Ryan. A quantum tech hub sounds... You know, cool and futuristic. What the heck does quantum entail?
4: I mean, when you hear the word quantum, you might think of quantum physics or quantum mechanics. That's what popped into my head. But I quickly realized that I could not explain what those terms meant and let alone how they applied to emerging technology.
0: What did you figure out for us?
4: well you can go down a lot of rabbit holes when you start googling what is quantum to boil it down quantum physics or quantum mechanics is a set of principles that govern the behavior of the very smallest things in the universe like atoms or even just pieces of atoms things we can't see or touch per se and these principles are very different from what's called classical mechanics, which pertains to things that are easily observed, like the arc of a basketball or what happens when you drop something on the floor.
0: Okay, good explanation. Go on. So teeny tiny things
4: yes. And then there's this idea that like blows my mind. When you're talking quantum, units of matter or energy don't exist in an either-or state. So we're accustomed to seeing the world in terms of up or down, on or off, here or there, in the case of computer code ones Ones and and zeros. zeros. Right. But quantum theory says that a particle exists in a state of limbo until something happens to change that. Lincoln Carr is a physics professor at Colorado School of Mines.
1: The most important idea in quantum is that, you know, everything is non-binary, the building blocks of our bodies, the electrons, protons and neutrons that make up matter, that make up the atoms, that make up the molecules, that make up our bodies. All of those objects are non-binary, right? So this concept Mm -hmm. that like binary thinking is somehow fundamental, uh, that, you know, things are true or false and
4: not in between. I mean, it's just it's just not the case.
0: That opens up a whole different dimension.
4: It's pretty wild to think about. And to be clear, quantum theory is not a new thing. I mean, these principles were discovered more than 100 years ago. And even though it sounds like science fiction, it turns out principles of quantum mechanics are already at play in a lot of things we all take for granted, like it enhances things like GPS and MRI machines.
0: Now, I understand people in the quantum field like to frame what's happening now as quantum 2.0 or the second quantum revolution. What does that mean? What does 2.0 do?
4: Frankly, it doesn't do a whole lot yet there are some real world applications particularly for quantum sensors for instance there's a company in boulder called Longpath, and they make sensors to monitor emissions okay. but what's getting a lot of buzz lately is computing and quantum computers would be exponentially faster and more powerful than today's capable of doing things that we can't even imagine doing with computers but the thing is, nobody has figured out how to make a quantum computer that truly works. Hmm. A problem. <laughs> so, Carr, the Minds professor, says the approach people are using for quantum computing today might not end up being the best way to do it. So, the first truly functional quantum computers might look totally different from what people are working on now.
1: The quantum computing is very speculative. We could be. Focusing on the wrong tree in a very big forest right now. Imagine if you weren't sure if your car was going to have eight wheels, four. If maybe it was going to have wings. Maybe it would it would crawl like a snake. You weren't really, really sure what it was going to do. You know it was going to go somewhere. But mm-hmm. you weren't really sure, you know, if you look at the early history of vehicles, people build all kinds of crazy things, right?
0: As we said, Sarah, Colorado could get a lot of money from the federal government through this quantum tech hub designation. I assume that's because this state is somehow uniquely positioned for quantum research?
4: Yes, there are quite a few companies and schools here that are pretty heavily involved.
0: So is that federal money going towards, like, a big experiment?
4: Not exactly. Like I said, you've got quantum sensing, which is doing things in the real world, and the money would also go into educating the quantum workforce of the future. But when it comes to quantum computing, yeah, the technology still has a ways to go, like I said, and some of the federal grant money would go towards companies in Colorado that are figuring things out. There are companies that are building quantum computers today, but they're really like test runs, Machines that researchers can play around with, but they can't run the kinds of equations we want quantum to do. But IBM, Google, all the big names in technology are doing this.
0: Okay. Did you find any companies in Colorado making quantum computers or at least attempting to?
4: Yes. I spoke with Corbin Tilleman Dick. He's the CEO of Maybell Quantum in Denver. Um, I couldn't get to the lab in person, but I did get to listen to what they're building there. Oh. Okay hears, maybe, the sound of the future.
0: What's happening?
4: Corbin can explain it better than I can.
1: You're listening to a refrigerator, a special refrigerator, but a refrigerator.
4: Ryan, it's very cold inside. It's 10 millikelvin, which is negative 441 degrees.
1: It's about two orders of magnitude colder than deep space. If the speed of light is the fastest you can go, then absolute zero is the coldest you can get. It's where all motion ceases. At 10 millikelvin, you're a few thousandths of a degree above absolute zero. When that system is running, it's, it's the coldest place in the known universe.
0: Oh, why so cold?
4: Okay, bear with me. Things can get a little confusing here. In a nutshell, that special refrigerator Maybell is making cools down the processor. And it has to be that cold so the quantum bits, qubits as they're called, okay. which are like the bits we're using on our computers right now to store information, but for quantum. So it has to be that cold so the qubits aren't disturbed. <laughs> You know how Corman said that at absolute zero, all motion ceases? Yeah. Okay, so in order for the qubits to do their thing, they have to maintain their relationship to one another. Kind of frozen
0: in place.
4: Yes. So this is something called entanglement. It gets way more complicated than that. But suffice it to say, you don't want those qubits interacting with other things and getting disentangled. That's why it has to be so cold to keep everything as still and quiet as possible for the qubits. The qubits? Yeah. So far, nobody has figured out how to keep enough of those qubits entangled for long enough to do useful calculations.
0: This is so fascinating. Say somebody figures out how to build a functional quantum computer. What kinds of things would it be able to do?
4: The answers to that question are all over the map. Quantum computers could be used to create new materials. They could be used to discover new medicines. They could be used for financial modeling. Mm. After a few conversations with folks in quantum computing, the question I had was, what can't quantum computers do? Uh-huh. Eventually. <laughs> one day. Yeah. But that's several years away. And as of now, all these quantum computing applications are theoretical.
0: Theoretical, right. And now Colorado's a regional hub to help get this into the applied world. Indeed. Thanks so much for coming on, Sarah. You bet. CPR business reporter Sarah Mulholland on the promise of quantum technology here. Okay, after a break, prisoners become professors. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
3: For years, Colorado leaders fought to keep Space Command headquarters in Colorado Springs. So we
5: enlisted our friends, our allies, folks that understand space issues deeply.
3: In this latest episode of CPR's politics podcast, Purplish, we pull back the curtain on Colorado's fight for Space Command, the bipartisan cooperation and lobbying it took to reverse a presidential decision to send the command to Alabama, and why any victory dance may be premature.
2: Purplish, wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Prisoners are becoming professors at Adams State University in Alamosa. The school has long taught incarcerated students through correspondence courses. Now it's added classes in prison and hired an inmate as an adjunct, one of the first in the nation. Lauren Hughes directs the prison education program at Adams State. Lauren, welcome.
2: Thank you for having me today.
0: So the educator we're talking about, David Carrillo, has been doing time at Colorado's Territorial Correctional Facility in Canyon City. He's actually being released today. Uh, What was his path to becoming an adjunct?
2: So his path was a pretty long one. He started by getting his GED while he was incarcerated and then continued up through getting an associate's degree, a bachelor's degree and a master's degree through the Adams State program we have. So students inside our nation's prisons can take correspondence classes and earn a master's in business administration.
0: And David was serving life, but uh, was recently granted clemency. Is that right?
2: Yes, that's correct. So he was granted clemency on December 22nd, and he can continue to be a professor with Adams State while he's free.
0: And my understanding is that his commitment to education is part of what led to his clemency.
2: That is exactly right. So his dedication over many years, because it takes quite a long time for someone to get through that kind of degree while incarcerated, showed the governor that he deserved to get clemency. And then also his position at Adams State helped him through that as well.
0: Am I right that the Department of Corrections actually suggested him as a professor?
2: So they suggested for us to hire some of our MBA graduates as instructors due to their staffing shortages after COVID. So they had brought up the idea to us. Hmm. When I came on the team, we chose David as our first professor. There was a few other people we were looking at, But David's qualifications in doing facilitation for other groups while he was incarcerated for some self-help groups and his dedication to education, we decided to go with him as the first candidate for this program. He's shined just like more than we could ever imagine. We told him we were hiring him at his MBA graduation in December of 2022, and he started teaching that next spring semester in 23.
0: Is staffing with an insider easier for the prison?
2: Yeah. So the, it's extremely easy for them to facilitate those courses, right? They don't have to worry about escorting someone through the facility or sitting with them during the course. Mm-hmm. So if I was the professor, they would have had to escort me and have someone in the room with me.
0: You spoke of what a talented educator he is. Is there an example or is there something you witness in his teaching that stands out?
2: I think the biggest asset to having David or anyone else who's incarcerated teaching those who are around them is the hope that he gives to the students. It gives them something to reach for. Right now, they're all working towards a bachelor's degree. And then they will eventually have the opportunity, if they so choose, if they can afford it, actually, to be able to take a master's with us and then get hired in the same way. But we're not just hiring people who take our courses. We have people who have been incarcerated with master's degrees already, Mm. and we're going to utilize their skills as well and see if they're interested in teaching with us.
0: You mentioned cost there. That's a concern, huh, for those who are incarcerated?
2: Yeah. So David was really lucky that he had family members to help him pay for his correspondence courses through our program. A lot of people don't have that across the country. We do have a significant amount of students. However, we could reach more people if this program was free for them. Hmm. Um, They do have either a parent or some people have tribal scholarships or outside scholarships. Nobody inside prison with maybe the exception of David and a few others, make enough money to pay for a college course while they're incarcerated. They make like 82 cents a day in Colorado right now.
0: He's been earning an educator's salary.
2: Yes. So the biggest thing when the DOC came to us about this program was our entire university said, yes, we're interested in doing this. However, we will not do it if they do not have the same salary as our adjunct professors on campus. Hmm. It was $3,000 a semester. It has now gone up because of cost of living raises to $3,600 per course per semester.
0: I wonder if this is a message too for educators who are not in prison to consider teaching courses behind bars.
2: We are always hiring. um, So I would love people to reach out we are in need of professors for not just in-person and virtual classes in Colorado. We do also have correspondence courses running all the time and we have about a hundred professors, but we need more all the time to make sure that our students are getting all the classes they need to attain their degree.
0: I understand this initiative is personal because you serve time. Um, Uh, You were 22 years old, an active-duty Marine sentenced to five years. What struck you the most when you entered the prison system?
2: When I walked into the prison system as being like someone who has that mentality of being the few, the proud, honorable Marine, and then who made a really terrible mistake, it was probably the most devastating thing that I could ever experience. You're not treated like someone who's done anything good in their life. You're just treated really terribly most of the time. Hmm. The beginning was really hard. I always compare it to only the first episode of Orange is the New Black. So imagine that feeling. That's kind of how I felt as a white woman going into a prison system for the first time. The rest of that show is pretty outrageous. (laughs) However, that first uh, episode is really one where I would say, if you want to know what it feels like, that's probably the best depiction of that. But while I was there, I had this amazing opportunity to start taking college courses in my first two weeks of being incarcerated.
0: This was in New Jersey. And mm-hmm. when you got out, you finished your degree at Rutgers. I, I, yeah. I want to note that most, I think this is right, most people in prison will be out someday. Um, mm-hmm. And so there has to be some connection here, Lauren, to reduced recidivism, increased success on the outside if you have an education. Do you think, is that true? Is that borne out?
2: Um, I used to work for a program called Hudson Link for Higher Education in Prison out of New York after I graduated. And they, for 20 years, had a zero recidivism rate. I don't know if you could still see it, but it was on HBO. There was a documentary about that program called Zero Percent. And I know that throughout the country, it's about a 43% recidivism rate to go back to prison. And in my opinion, it's probably like an 80% failure, because some people just never reintegrate back in society, but they may never go back to prison. So some people are homeless, or they just don't ever reintegrate back in the same way that they used to. Hmm. So I think our prisons are failing extremely. And the one way to stop them from failing is to get people an education. And give them the first chance that they've ever had an education because a lot of times people don't have a first chance when they're, they're home and they're younger and they live in certain areas in this country that don't have great access to quality education while they're in elementary, middle school, and high school.
0: Oh, I think it's so powerful what you've just said, which is that we often frame life after prison as a second chance, but what you're saying is, no, there may not have been the first chance.
2: Exactly. Mm -hmm. Um, I can tell you that half the people I was in prison with didn't have a GED, didn't have a high school diploma. I was privileged. I did. I was able to go to college after um, high school and I, I messed that up myself. But many, many people did not have those opportunities. And the women that I was taking courses with, those were some of their first college courses ever.
0: How is Colorado doing? Like, If you were to give Colorado a report card in this respect, what would it be?
2: I think Colorado does a really good job while people are inside to help them get the education that they deserve and that they need. There's always going to be more work to do, but right now I do really believe that while people are incarcerated here in Colorado, their education department works really hard to make sure that Everybody has an opportunity to get a GED and go further if they so choose.
0: Are you excited for David Korea's next chapter?
2: I am thrilled. I cannot wait to see him grow outside and change and probably get like amazing positions. I wouldn't be where I am today without the education I got inside. I've been home 10 years and now I'm a director of a program here in Colorado. And this has been my dream. And I don't know what David's dreams are, but I'm hoping they're bigger than mine and that he will have every opportunity afforded to him. And we'll work really hard for that. I have a lot of national connections and he's presented at different conferences with us already through Zooming out from the prison and has made an impact on people in this work already. So I think the future for him is really bright. I'm really proud of him.
0: Lauren, thank you so much. Nice to meet you. Thank you. Lauren Hughes directs the prison education program at Adams State University in Alamosa. Her colleague on the inside, adjunct professor David Carrillo, was granted clemency by the governor and walks free today. We hope to bring you a conversation with him as he adjusts to life on the outside soon. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with a tool to fight environmental injustice that's not working quite like it's supposed to. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. So much news, it's impossible to take it all in. But The Lookout brings focus to what's essential to every informed Coloradan. Every weekday, it's a free digest of news from all over the state. Sign up at cpr.org lookout. To address environmental injustice, the state created an online map. The idea was to identify neighborhoods that needed the most support. But since its release a year ago, the tool has come under a lot of criticism. CPR's Molly Cruz is here to explain. Hi, Molly.
6: Hi, Ryan. And
0: tell us more about this tool.
6: So it was developed as a direct response to the Environmental Justice Act, which Governor Jared Polis signed into law in 2021. EnviroScreen was released a year later. Basically, both the act and the tool are part of the state's effort to address decades-long environmental injustices.
0: Okay, so this is called EnviroScreen, and how does the tool help with that mission?
6: So supposedly, the tool identifies communities around Colorado that are disproportionately impacted by environmental injustices. Like what? Like dirty waterways, air pollution, busy highways, proximity to oil, and mining and gas sites, just to name a few.
0: And you use the word uh, supposedly. Um, Is the tool not achieving that?
6: Well, it's had a rocky rollout. State agencies were told use EnviroScreen to make rulemaking decisions, allocate drilling permits, and direct funding. So the stakes are high. But when I spoke with different users, including a few of these agencies, there was a lot of confusion and frustration over EnviroScreen's intended purpose and who it's for.
0: What went into developing EnviroScreen?
6: Um, Colorado State University researchers worked with the state to create EnviroScreen. It took them about a year and more than $200,000 to build. And it's a mapping tool. So the idea is that EnviroScreen will track environmental health hazards around the state. Mm-hmm. It uses counties and census tracts or blocks and ranks them according to risk. Based on that, the tool gives communities a score. The higher the score, the more environmental injustices. is. Okay. It's based on a similar one run by the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, but the Colorado version has more state-specific details and data like asthma hospitalizations proximity to specific pollution sources
0: okay that makes sense to me so isn't having a colorado specific mapping tool around environmental injustice not a good thing molly
6: well in theory yes ryan but lots of questions were brought up about the tool's credibility and accuracy
0: okay tell us more about that
6: well last year officials in weld county issued an 80-page report that found quote, significant limitations in the data EnviroScreen uses.
0: 80 pages long.
6: Yeah, the report cost the county more than $30,000. So I spoke with Dr. Aneralee Morales, the environmental health specialist for Weld County, to learn more about the county's concerns and why they filed that big report on EnviroScreen. Once we heard this tool was available, I think they started looking at it. And just just by starting clicking around, looking at some maps, it- was clear that there was something off that's like our commissioners like to say it didn't pass the visual test
0: was weld county the only stakeholder to raise the alarm about something being off with the tool
6: no in fact the more i started looking into colorado EnviroScreen, the more concerned users i found a few months after weld county released its report State Representative Gabe Evans called for the legislative audit of the tool. Here's part of my conversation with him. How will this tool impact residents in your district?
5: Well, so that was one of the big questions that I asked, is
1: this tool is being used to allocate you know, millions of dollars of government resources. This tool is being used in rulemakings by regulatory agencies. And so if this tool is going to have that much impact, then I wanna make sure that
5: we, again, we have a good tool that's got decision-grade information.
6: So as Colorado prepares to launch version 2.0 this year, the state health department faces ongoing pushback from users. There's also some confusion about who the tool is for and its purpose, even from environmental groups who support the state doing more to tackle environmental inequities.
0: Yeah, and why do we think this is?
6: Well, for starters, the Weld County report was right. A lot of the data the tool uses is outdated. Ah. Secondly, having spent a decent amount of time clicking around the tool myself, I would say it's not very user-friendly. CDPHE has released a few Q&As and a user guide, and every now and then it'll host user demos.
0: So is EnviroScreen being used right now?
6: Yes and no. The state told me that it's being used for issuing permits, but so far every agency I spoke with said they haven't denied any permits or canceled proposed projects based on EnviroScreen scores. So since the tools release, CDPHE has released $1 million to fund eight projects around the state. There are many more applicants and they all had to use EnviroScreen to prove that their address is disproportionately impacted but the state didn't use EnviroScreen scores to choose the projects or determine how much money each project received. I oh, was
0: curious. Okay.
6: So, besides telling you how much funding each of the H projects received, it's hard to say what the Impact EnviroScreen has had on Colorado so far. In fact, a few stakeholders I spoke with weren't even aware that EnviroScreen was a tool they could use.
0: So, where do we go from here?
6: Well, CDPHE announced that it's currently working on EnviroScreen 2.0. It'll be released sometime this year. They have not given out a lot of information about the new version of the tool besides the fact that they will be addressing a lot of concerns I mentioned to you today.
0: All right. Well, I suppose the hope is that EnviroScreen becomes more useful for local communities and accurate. Molly, thank you so much. Thanks, Ryan. CPR's Molly Cruz. You can find her reporting at CPR.org. A Colorado woman is on presidential primary ballots in Minnesota, but her message isn't what you'd expect.
1: Please do not vote for me. Please do not vote for Crystal Gable in this race. I did not give consent to be on the ballot line.
0: Gable is a cannabis activist in Brush, Colorado, on the Eastern Plains. And indeed, she learned her name is on the primary ballot for Minnesota's Legal Marijuana Now Party.
1: For president, nonetheless. Um, I received a Google alert that my name was on the ballot. That's how I found out.
0: Gable has run for office in the past, a dark horse gubernatorial campaign in Nebraska, city council in Brush, but she has no interest in the White House.
1: My understanding is the Minnesota party put cannabis activists on their ballot line because Minnesota state law allows it. It's a flawed loophole in their law
0: a law she'd like to change, especially because her name can't be taken off before Minnesota's March 5th contests. For the party's part, it says Gable had been in on some discussions ahead of the primary, and it no longer considers her a formal candidate. Is this any sort of compliment to you?
1: Um, It would be if I was asked first, I suppose, and if I gave permission. But I moved to Colorado. I'm a medical patient. I don't really appreciate, without permission, being put on on such a, a racy ballot, right? This is a very big political year. I believe that those votes could be going to a legitimate candidate.
0: Speaking of legitimacy, Gable does deeply believe marijuana should be legal. Minnesota just took that step. The drug remains illegal in her former Nebraska. And that's why Colorado was attractive to her.
1: It means freedom from pharmaceuticals. It means choice over alcohol. It means public funds that can replace taxpayer dollars instead of raising property taxes. Alternative medicine. It means biofuel and changes to science and how we do farming. It means everything to me. Cannabis could change our world. So cannabis is really important in my opinion.
0: But it's also important, she says, that people give their consent to appear on a ballot.
1: We have a common right law to not be put on ballots and be forced to be candidates in this country. So that's anti-democratic, in my opinion. And it's anti-democratic to vote for somebody like me who doesn't want to be on that ballot.
0: Crystal Gable of Brush, Colorado, who is not running for president despite appearing on the primary ballot for the legalized Marijuana Now Party in Minnesota. And this is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Millions of years ago, the Colorado River carved Glenwood Canyon. A narrow, winding way with walls a thousand feet high, the canyon's first human traffic made way on foot. When westward pioneers arrived in wagons, they dug out a wider trail, passable only in summer. Then the railroad blasted through. Then a dirt road. Then a paved two-lane highway. But when an interstate was proposed, there was pushback. John Denver joined the resistance and threw a rock across the canyon to prove its narrowness. Studies to minimize impact went back and forth for years. To snake an interstate through this slot required innovations. And when I-70 finally opened in 1992, this 12-mile section marked the end of a nationwide project begun in the Eisenhower era. Watch for rock slides now and then, but also marvel at the majesty of Glenwood Canyon. A Colorado postcard from CPR, with support from Coble & Company. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. What if there were a pill you could take to ease heartbreak? It's something researchers are working on, and it's one of the fascinating threads in a book called Heartbreak by Colorado science writer Florence Williams. She also asks, is it medically possible to die from a broken heart? And she explores why beauty can help us bounce back from a breakup. Williams will join me next week in Loveland, Colorado, as we record an episode of our book series, Turn the Page. We'll be at the historic Rialto Theater in downtown Loveland the evening of Wednesday, February 7th, and you are invited tickets at cpr.org slash turn the page. There is a historic granary in Hayden, Colorado, where farmers and ranchers stored and shipped their crops. It was a gathering place, too, but became a hulking relic until Tammy and Patrick Delaney saved it, buying the century-old structure in 2008. Now, again, it is a hub in Hayden with a coffee shop, a wine bar, and a community hall. I spoke with the Delaney's in October. Patrick, Tammy, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having us. It's great to be here. Thanks. We are connected through a video chat, and I am seeing just the most remarkable space behind you. Where are you?
5: So we're in what we currently use as a community barn dance hall, but it's the large warehouse where grain was stored, and either a train would be loaded, or someone would come by with a truck and fill their truck with grain or bag grain for their horses or what other animals they had. And it's a pretty spacious warehouse that we cleaned up over the years, and now we use primarily for barn dances once a month. Barn
0: dances. There's a long tradition of that, I understand, in Hayden. And Tammy, as I look at the background, it's just really intricate woodwork. And then you've warmed the place up with these inviting white lights.
3: Oh, I love party lights, yes.
0: (laughs) Well, maybe you could paint a bit of a before and after for us. Um, (laughs) Yeah, well, you're laughing, I imagine out a mix of dauntedness (laughs) and maybe you're marveling at your own project a bit tammy what did it look like before and give us a sense of the after
3: well before i would come by here for grain basically for my horses i get my oats here at that time it was full of livestock and horse feed and a lot of empty bags of grain and horse feed and such that would through the years just kind of accumulate in the corners. So at the time when we went for this leap of faith of buying the inventory of a feed and tax store with this greenery facility thrown in, the previous owner, he basically scraped off a four by four section of the concrete floor to show me that it was a concrete floor. They don't make places like this anymore. It's all full-dimensional lumber. Part of the facility is old wooden bins for livestock pellets.
0: Uh, As someone who hates dusting his small condo, I really can't even fathom what that cleanup and transformation would have been like. You know, it's fascinating because this was a leap of faith. You had no clear plan in 08. You really bought it for the feed store operating in part of it. And you said this, the granary, the largest part of the building was thrown in sort of as extra. Patrick, did you have buyer's remorse?
5: Many, many times, I think, Ryan. (laughs) Um, You know, we bought it because we thought it needed to be saved, right? And that was the building and the store. But we naively thought that we could run the store to fund the, not even restoration, just rehabilitation of the building. But we we're a little too far in front of that. And while we got it cleaned up, sadly, the feed store was not a profitable business for us to run.
0: Hmm. Well, and so you, I guess it's a different kind of feed that you're involved in now. And that's feeding people caffeine, isn't it?
5: That's right. Yeah, it's a caffeine
3: ca- and I would say a lot of love is how I describe Aww. it. And how I had to describe it to the banker at one point is it's not about really making a living it's really about making a life and that's a lifestyle choice to create these gathering places and the previous owner definitely had that in fact he had a sign on the door that said nyampa valley coffee pot which i just loved mm-hmm. because you'd go by at any time of the day he was open it was typically the guys would be drinking coffee smoking cigarettes and talking about everything and there's a lot of magic to that in a community
0: it's hard to be unhappy at a coffee shop, I think. If you're just joining us, we're talking about the transformation of the Hayden Granary. This is near Steamboat Springs in the Yampa Valley, and to some extent, its transformation is also a picture of how Hayden itself is transforming, which we'll talk about. Well, you got a $120,000 grant from Colorado Preservation Incorporated for a new roof and facade. And besides the grant, you two have taken lots of other steps to ensure the structure will continue to stand as the heart of Hayden. You know, I I suppose the folks in Hayden know to go to the granary. But if you're flying into the airport there, which is like a big tourist port, you know, or if you're driving through on Highway 40, I'm not sure I would I would know to pull over to the granary for coffee. Uh, How do you make this sustainable and draw people in?
5: <laughs> the great question, um, one that, you know, it's a little bit of, uh, there's a lot of word of mouth. We have a lot of people that, you know, live in town, spread the word, or they live in Steamboat and fly out of Hayden or, or commute to Craig, they stop by. So the word of mouth uh, spreads quite a bit. And then there's a lot of people, and in, in, we would include ourselves in that category. When you drive through a place, you look for interesting sites. And many, many, many people have stopped by and visited here because they see the grain elevator and they're like, you know, what's activated out front? And they're like, that looks like an interesting place. Mm. We've also added four apartments. So we have two short term and two long term apartments there. That brings a fair number of people in. And then uh, there's a brewery right next door. And that certainly helps bring people to us as well.
0: Yes. it's I mean, it's de rigueur, right? It's Colorado. Sure. There's going to be a brewery. That's right. Uh, <laughs> has the building ever left you in tears?
3: <laughs> Almost lost our ranch, which we absolutely love. So yes, there's been a lot of challenges through it because we probably ran the feed store four years too long. And yet I I feel like our community has been really what's enabled this building to come forward into its next chapter. As a great example, the feed store when we were closing, people were bemoaning the fact that suddenly this place that they would go to once a month to get either their dog food or their steer food that they couldn't meet anyone because it was the only place they could meet in town. And I one day went, well, what about instead of dog food, how about coffee? And they're like, oh man, we'll be in every day. And so what we did is transform the coffee shop because at that time, we did not have the funding. We could not apply for any loans because of the financial challenges. We literally did a community-supported coffee shop. So we sold coffee in advance. So we had what we call a gaggle. So instead of buy 10, get one free, They'd go all up front and for $50 get $55 worth of coffee drinks.
0: And I'll say and the, the gaggle is a cute name because the coffee shop is the Goose Coffee Shop.
5: Oh, yeah. Yeah, we just, have all do, do, kinds of takeoff on wild goose coffee. Yes. Aha, okay.
3: Yeah, and it's kind of the concept of where three or more are gathered.
5: Patrick, was Tammy
0: implying there that you had mortgaged your own ranch to make this possible? Yeah.
5: Well, I mean, that's a simple way to put it. I think uh, we put ourselves in a very precarious financial situation that took many years to get out of it. So, yeah, we risk our home and, you know, a lot of things because of it. And in hindsight, it's hard to say why we did that. But at the time, it just, you know, we we're sort of like bad gamblers. You know, our <laughs> luck's got to change, right? So, oh, it's, um,
0: yeah, I appreciate your candor. It's really refreshing. Um
3: so- I will add to that, we have two grown children. They're turning 28 this weekend and 26. They were in their preteens and early teen. It was an incredible experience. And similar to us doing a leap of faith for ranch that we could raise our kids with livestock and learning how to grow and nourish their own food, the premise around the feed store was a way for the kids to learn that work ethic. And I would say the education they got was priceless in a lot of respects, because they also look at risk and financial aspects in a whole different way than many of their contemporaries.
5: Um, A lot of times, you know, we ask this question, would we do this again? And, you know, the first instinct is to say no way. But then you talk to it you're like, okay, yeah, maybe, you know, it didn't turn out that badly, but it could have been really bad for us.
0: I mean, this is like such a lame comparison. But, you know, I grew up in Los Angeles, and we would go to the family farm every summer in Waverly, Iowa. And the time spent around the combines and the grain and that life, you know, it transformed me. So I, I, get, I get it when you talk about your kids that way. I just want to put the granary into some context. So Hayden has a few bright spots against the backdrop of coal you know, sunsetting there. You have a $66 million new school, 250 housing units, either under construction or approved. I gather there's a tension between kind of old and new Hayden, no? 2,200 people, some of them got to think, let's keep it as it was.
5: Well, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think you have a lot of that. I mean, one of the differences, just our experience, Hayden to Steamboat, you know, Tammy is a Steamboat native. When we first moved here, there are a lot of old families in Hayden that have been here a long time and, you know, definitely didn't want to be like Steamboat. But, you know, that being said, yes, the loss of coal here will be very significant for our community and and for our valley as a whole. But Hayden, I think, has done a lot of work and we're fortunate in our proximity uh, to Steamboat. We certainly have the airport. We have the new school. We have young families moving here, which is great in a small town to have that because it means our town is going to, you know, survive and be vibrant. But, you know, the jobs is, is I'm sure you've been talking about, you know, the jobs that come with especially tourism don't equal the jobs that you get from the power plant and the coal mine. Yeah. But it's, it's a wonderful place to live. And I think for the foreseeable future, we'll remain that way.
0: We glancingly mentioned the barn dances at the beginning. I think Tammy, you're in a barn coat. I don't know. It looks like a barn coat. I, I imagine that it's drafty in that space. Do the barn dances make it all worth it? <laughs>
3: barn dances are <laughs> a lot of work as well, so <laughs> we we need to be better at recruiting volunteers for the setup. But absolutely, and it's a tradition Hayden has had for a very long time. We have everything from the little two-year-olds bebopping up and down to the beat to 80-year-olds who know how to cowboy cha-cha and know how to swing beyond belief. And so it's an all-ages gathering point that you kind of put aside all the, all the little partisanships that seem to happen anymore and instead come together as a community for fun.
5: Pretty special. So, yeah, I guess it's worth it, Ryan. That's the long and the short <laughs> answer.
0: I did appreciate the asterisk, though, that there are also a lot of work. You know, I think with um, certain kinds of businesses, beds and breakfasts and um, maybe bookstores and coffee shops, there's this romanticizing about what it's like to run these businesses, but they're freaking exhausting.
3: Well, Richard Bach has a great quote. It's on the wall in the coffee shop of you are never given a wish without the power to make it come true. Dot, dot, dot. You may have to work for it, however. And I'd have to say we are now seeing a lot of the wishes and dreams and visions coming forth and actually happening. And yet the reality is you have to work for it. It's
5: only taken 15 years. Yeah. <laughs> <You're taking that. laughs> yeah. patience. Thank you both for being
0: with us. I look forward to meeting you at the granary someday soon. Patrick and Tammy Delaney refurbished and repurposed a century-old granary in Hayden, Colorado, near Steamboat Springs. We spoke in October. In a similar vein, on Friday, we'll tell you about five historic sites that are being added to the endangered list from Colorado Preservation, Inc. There's also good news, though, about two sites that have been saved. Again, that's Friday on Colorado Matters. Lastly, for today, we got word from singer-songwriter Curtis O'Rourke Stedman, a.k.a. Cousin Curtis. We first met him in 2019. At the time, he was living in the small town of Placerville near Telluride.
5: Placerville is my and many other people's happy place because we love... Tell you ride right in the mountains, but every once in a while it gets a little too crazy and you need some separation. so you go to Placerville, where you have a post office and you have a mercantile, and all your friends are there <laughs> so that 's placerville.
0: Curtis has since moved to a town fifty times bigger, Matros, which is where he recorded his latest EP. It delivers his signature root stomp sound, think the blues at bluegrass speeds. Curtis reached out to share his favorite track with us, a fiery ode to life on the road titled Furnace.
5: Now, I wrote the lyrics to Furnace first, and after a few edits, I let the song just kind of sit on the back burner for a while before adding any music to it. And then once I felt like it could stand alone as a poem, essentially, and as a true autobiographical snapshot of life at that time, you know, embracing the chaos as a touring musician and learning to cope with all it offers, both good and bad, then it needed a melody that would help carry those emotions. Altogether, the lyrics of Furnace and the ferocity and pace of the song solidify it as one of my favorites to play. Once upon a time I was running around Trying to fall in love with this whole town Got my side set on some I've yet to see Is it a dream or a nightmare or reality? Night? Waking up out of breath in the middle of the night Covered in sweat And into the fire to the for the moment my body on the fire on my way out of the furnace and into the fire Out of the furnace and into the fire. Try focus on my breath, beating in my chest, it everything I got until there's nothing
1: backstage. There's a bottle of shine. Never drink with me, and I'm I to make you mine. Living in sins, I'm
0: fine me. As in, I ain't no help you can stay. Furnace by our friend Cousin Curtis of Montrose now perform at the Lariat in Buena Vista Friday, then crosses the divide for a show Saturday at Denver's Globe Hall. His latest 2023 EP is out now. And we're out for now with special thanks to producer Nell London and to the entire Colorado Matters team.
5: Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer.
6: Molly
3: Cruz. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher,
5: Matt Hers, Tom Hess, Michael Hughes, Chris Ketchum,
0: Pedro Lumbraño, Shane Rumsey, Chandra
4: Thomas-Whitfield,
0: and I'm Ryan Warner at CPR News and KRCC.